0: The rest of us, um, grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 5, <clears throat> and verse 17, we're going to read through verse 32, it includes two Accounts of what's going on with the disciples following the ascension of Christ as they're preaching in Jerusalem before the first major persecution in Jerusalem kicked the disciples out and only the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So, Acts chapter 5, starting verse 17. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So they were tried in front of uh, uh, the the Sanhedrin and now they are in prison. Verse 19, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the, pri- to the prison who- to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison... They returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witness to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who... Obey him. And then Gamaliel says, You know what? We, it, if this is from God, we can't help, but if it's not from God, it's going to die out. We'll pick up in verse 40. <clears throat> and they agreed with him, and when they, they had called before the apostles and beaten them, they commanded they, they should not speak in the name of uh, Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted. Worthy to suffer shame for His name, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. We're going to come back to this in a moment, okay? We are continuing our series on lies that we live by, and the lie that we're going to consider today is can be a lie or can be true. But the way that it's taught today is often a lie as far as the scriptures go. And this is the lie. God just wants us to be happy. Now, our very first question of the shorter catechism and the larger catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? The man's chief end is to glorify God and what? Enjoy him. So the word joy is in there. So, There's a sense that God wants us to be happy, but that's not usually the sense that this sentence is used. In the early 2000s, um, Christian Smith, Christian Smith is a sociologist um, out of uh, Notre Dame University in, I don't know, one of those states in the middle. Is that Indiana? Okay. Um, Led a team of researchers... With the National Study of, of Youth and Religion, so, and they studied thousands of teenagers uh, they, start, they started the study in two thousand they ended the study in 2005. so seventeen years ago, so these the, the, the subject of the studies would be what thirty, a little over thirty, right since there were teens in those years. This is what they found that the average American teenager believed, not 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 necessarily Christians but average American teenager in general that a god that the average American teenager believed that a god exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth that god wants people to be good nice and fair to each other as taught in the bible and by most world religions the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. <clears throat> it's more like the story of Aladdin then, but... <clears throat> good people go to heaven when they die. So those are the top five beliefs in American teenagers. So the average American teenager in the 2000, early 2000s, first five years of this century, this is what that's their core beliefs. Christian Smith then and his team labeled this set of beliefs as moralistic therapeutic deism so there's morality there it's therapeutic it makes you feel good and it's deistic there is they agree that there is a God but this God is not involved with life just sit in there and then when you ring the bell it comes and helps you for whatever problem then he leaves to you, and you can just go on with life So it seems that the American teenagers were under the impression that God just wanted them to be happy and nice to one another. That's the core of the belief. God wants them to be happy and to be nice to one another. This kind-hearted therapist in the sky would grant them their wishes if they needed anything, but would otherwise keep the distance and let them be. Well, the average, as I said, the average American teenager in 2005 is now the average American adult, and this belief system permeates all parts of society. Now, the saddest part of Christian Smith's study or conclusion is that these top five things were true outside of the church and inside of the evangelical church as well. So this is not peculiar to the world, but inside of evangelical world. Christian Smith himself is a Roman Catholic, uh, like a, a very strong Roman Catholic, so it was very disappointing to him to find that there's no difference between the world and the church. And we do see this system in the church. Can you think of today movements in the church or theologies in the church that might be a representation of these five beliefs that the teen- teenagers had in the early 2000s. Sonia don't answer a question with a question (laughs) state it as you believe it prosperity gospel yes that's a reflection God just wants you to be happy and if you give me money God is gonna make you really happy is is that's the the prosperity uh, gospel uh, idea what else? What are the things you see? I don't have enough. My teeth are not straight enough to portray him, but the guy in Houston that tells you to live your best life now. See, he's not the prepared, the core prosperity gospel. He's more like a motivational speaker, like Tony, whatever his name, huh? Robbins, Robbins yeah, I was going to say Tony Evans, but that's the pastor in Dallas. Um, Tony Robbins and, and people like that. That That's this reflection. God just wants you to be happy. Live your best life now. Yes, Darren, and then Grace. Oh, that's Brandon's hand behind Grace, so sorry. Darren. Just the fact that you see divorce. Right, so if your marriage stinks. You're not happy in it. God wants you to be happy. Get a divorce, right? Uh, uh, there is an account of a counselor who was telling me that that uh, he was was talking to some people, um, and then he overheard this conversation in the church where these two ladies were talking, and one was saying that her marriage was super hard and difficult, and the other lady said, "Well, God wants you to be happy, right? Uh, yeah. So He doesn't want you to stay in this marriage." And that's a conversation taking place in a Bible believing church. Um, was it? Scott? Uh, it makes me think of a social gospel. You know, like, shouldn't we all just be getting along <coughs> and helping each other out and be fair and nice? And yeah. A city and make sure, water and whatever? sure, yeah. And there's more, too. <coughs> and what I'm going to say next is kind of subtle and way more present in evangelical bible believing churches than anything we've said so far. And this is it. There's an unbalanced, we see an unbalanced focus on preaching on how to live this this life now while de-emphasizing the glories of the life to come. I wish I could find it again, but I read an article about singing in the church and that up to the 1950s and 60s, here we go, the baby boomers again. You guys really messed us up. Uh, <laughs> up to the 1950s and 60s, um, upwards of 93% of all hymns that were sung, or all songs that were sung in the Bible-believing church were about heaven and the life to come, the trials of this life and the glories of life to come. Uh, in the uh, early 2000s, to 2010s to 15, that dropped to 2%. That, uh, what the church sings the most is about life right here, and right now, and this is core, Bible-believing uh, churches, so this is, but there's this unbalance in the preaching and teaching about the life now instead of the life to come. And yet the Bible says that we are sojourners and pilgrims in this life going somewhere else, and that has to be our focus. But how to um, have a better marriage, how to be better parents, How to things are important, but they are dominating the uh, teaching ministry of, of the church. And I think that is a reflection of that system in which God wants you to be happy. So let me tell you how to, in these five steps or six steps and, and so on. So this is a little more subtle, but is I think, a reflection of this. What is the biggest problem with this idea that God wants you to be happy? God just wants you to be happy if understood the wrong way, uh, there it is. It would be all about yes, it's very self-centered. We're you going to say something? It's yeah, it's a very self-centered. The the God wants to be to be happy. You to be happy. Belief system is inherently self-centered. It's about you. It's about me, not about God. And usually in this system, happiness. Is equated with doing whatever you want right and you can see that a lot of these lies go together be yourself you you do you Uh, you know you're number one all these things kind of go together these lies all work uh, together so happiness has been defined as a psychological state of contentment if you feel happy then you're that's that's what it matters it is good, it is the good feeling that you have when you have a really nice prayer time, hear a very emotional sermon, or sip your favorite coffee. That's the same feeling that's there that may or may not have anything to do with the work of the Spirit in your heart. Popular culture tells us That happiness means controlling our circumstances in a way that allows us to have those good feelings as often as possible. And if we don't experience those good feelings, we should change our circumstances. And the Bible is not against changing circumstances. But the Bible teaches that happiness can happen despite the circumstances that you are in. But the world says, and the church says, Body, that, no, are you unhappy in your marriage? Get a divorce. Filling down, pop a pill. Overwhelmed by motherhood? Well, take to social media and tell how bad your kids are, or something like that. And you see that um, a lot out there. This idea of God just wants you to be happy demands the absence of hardships. That somehow, if you are having hardships in your life, you can't. Be happy. So, God's job is to remove all those hardships so that you can be happy. But that's not what the scriptures teach. This idea teaches self protection at all costs. The problem with that is that relationships are always costly, relationships are always risky. And the closer the relationship, the more costly they are. But if a relationship brings a risk, just eliminate them. If situations are uncomfortable, just don't don't go through them. This doctrine teaches. The problem, though, with this thinking is that Christians expect hardship. Christians are to expect hardships in their lives. You understand that the Bible promises, if you're a Christian, that you're going to face hardships. This is one of the main passages. Why I think. Well, I'm gonna, not going to say that. But this tells us, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Hardship is going to be present in the life of a Christian. So if happiness is the absence of hardships, then a Christian can never be happy. Because Jesus Christ himself promises hardships in our lives. Are you with me so far? Any questions or comments before we we continue? Katie. If, if if there is a bad situation, you have the means to change in a godly way, yes. do it. But your happiness doesn't demand that the circumstances change. Well, and, and, and I guess I wasn't even thinking that happiness would be the goal. I just wanted to make that clarification. Like, mm-hmm. you wouldn't say that we should just stay in suffering just for the sake of persecution. Like, just to say, like, look at me, not right. Wait a second, and we're going to deal with that as well, right? But I'll say just this, that happiness in the Bible tends to be very close, not exactly the same, but very close to contentment. And to be contented even when you can't change your... Like, you can't change that you have three kids, right? (laughs) You should not change... Yeah, you should not change the fact they have three kids so that's a situation that you shouldn't change but you can be happy in that whether it's a hard day whether the kids are, are not behaving like they should or one of them is facing suffering in their own lives and you just want to you know to, to eliminate that even those situations we can face that happiness that contentment that is in, in, in the Bible Louis, can we come back to you a little later sure. okay hopefully you forget So what's the what's the Bible's definition of happiness? Well, instead of a psychological state, (laughs) happiness is an alignment with God and obedience to his word. In the Bible, happiness is alignment with God in obedience to his word. Think about the account that we read this morning. Not not this morning. It feels, feels like it was a long time ago, but it was tonight in the beginning of our time together. The apostles that we read in the beginning of this lesson, they were arrested because they were preaching the gospel. An angel miraculously came and freed them from jail and told them, go back to preach the gospel They obeyed that angel, and what happened? People got saved, millions of dollars, bunch of shekels in their their pocket, all kinds of money and silver, no. They were arrested, beaten again. That's the situation. How would you respond to that? I can tell you how I think I would respond to that. I think I would say something like, really God? You sent an angel to literally escort me out of prison to go preach the gospel again, and I did exactly what the Lord, the, the angel told me, just so that I can get beaten again. I think that's how I would respond to that situation. Yet, that's not not, not how the apostles responded. Remember how verse forty-one says they got beaten and then they left, doing what? Rejoicing. So they didn't need the removal of the hardship in order to rejoice, in order to be happy, in order to have joy. Where? Down in their hearts. <laughs> yes. Why, why is it that joy is only for Tuesday? Never mind. You don't know the song, maybe. <laughs> and it's possible because it's a God-focused joy. It's not a self-centered mood enhancement. It's focused on the Lord, and then you're able to have that even in, in, um, in times of struggle. And slowly, people understand the Tuesday joke, as you the, as the, can see in the faces of, of people. So why, why do they respond this way? Because they were God-focused, not self-focused. They understood that uh, biblical happiness doesn't come from the absence of struggles in life. True biblical happiness is knowing deep down that no matter our circumstances, we are lost and now are found. No circumstance would change that for a Christian. Uh, true biblical happiness is a clear conscience that rejoices in obeying God. This is what Paul says in Philippians. Remember, Paul is in jail when he says this. And, he, and he, he may, there's a chance that he's going to be exo- uh, exonerated, but there's a chance that he's going to lose his head. And I mean like getting beheaded um, following the writing of Philippians. And he says, yes. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Even facing the prospect of beheading, Paul is able to rejoice. Be contented with the work of the Lord in his life. God does want us happy. It's true, God does want us to be happy, and that happiness is achieved through obedience. So if you are if you want to be truly happy, you're going to get comfortable with suffering. Because God calls us to suffer. Um, Paul says in Philippians 1 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but uh, what but also to suffer for his sake the next quote is something that uh, Johnny Erickson Tada wrote when she met Elizabeth Elliot for the first time so if I know what Elizabeth Elliot is remember how I'm thinking in the 50s now. Was that in the 50s? Her husband was killed by the very Indians that they went to preach the gospel in Ecuador. And then she stayed with her kid. And then the chief was saved through her testimony and became a pastor. And she stayed down there. So she was acquainted with suffering. And do you, do you know who Joni Erickson Tata is? She's a... A woman, I'm, I'm going to say in sixties or seventies now, who, as a teenager, was jumping off a, uh, a diving board, I think, and a pier, and broke, severed her spine, and's been quite a so no movement from the neck down since then. This is what, so, a lot of hardship there, right? A lot of suffering to go around. This is what Joni Erickson Titus said about meeting Elizabeth Elliot we were simply followers of Christ who had plumbed the depths of His joy by tasting His afflictions, those afflictions that had cut deep gashes in our hearts through which grace and joy had poured in, stretching and filling our souls with the abundance of our Lord. So she saw her afflictions as the things that actually opened her heart to receive the grace of God, and she was able to rejoice in them. But that's not just... Well, sorry. The, the, I don't know if you guys were able to see the quote, but it disappeared. But that's not just Johnny that says that. Paul, the apostle, says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts, by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then one last passage on this, James James 1, 2, and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So, biblical happiness does not require the absence of hardship. Now, Katie, back to what you were saying. As Christians, we don't go looking for suffering. We don't go looking for hard situations. We don't go, you know, we're not masochists. We don't, it's not like you get hit to say, oh, praise Jesus for that necessarily, right? It's not in the hitting that, that or in this. so we don't rejoice in suffering just for the sake of suffering. But we understand that the purpose of suffering in life is to conform us to the image of Christ. And it's not wrong to try to get out of suffering. But if it's not possible to do that in a godly way, then we rest with the Apostle Paul. This says that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If, if you are Christian, you are promised suffering because we live in a world that is in rebellion against the one who lives in us. Christ's through Spirit lives in us, and that world this world we live in is rebelly against Him. So he says, our Lord says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, and the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you not because you're hateable, but because you portray, reflect Christ. Are you with me on that one? That's why sometimes it's hard to understand, or that's why isn't... <laughs> What's the best way to say this? We should view people who are Super successful in social media with a bit of suspicion as far as the gospel goes. Because our Lord says that uh, if we are following him, the world is not going to like us. But yet, if everybody just loves everything that we're spilling in social media, there might be an issue. Does it make sense to you or not? Is that completely foreign to... to well, Carl <clears throat> I, I, um, J- Truman does a good job of explaining that in his longer book, whose title, Escape Me Now. Of the Modern Self. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, yes. Um, that really, a Christian, according to the scriptures, is not going to have a place of relevance in society... Because the Bible tells us that we're going to be hated because of the teachings of our Savior. Are you with me on that? Okay. Does your definition of happiness have room for suffering? If not, you have a sub-Christian definition of happiness. Because um, in the Scriptures, we're promised suffering, we're promised hardships, and yet we are able to rejoice through them. Any questions or comments before we close? Do you still remember, Lois? Yes, you stole my thunder. Okay, sorry. So. <laughs> it would have been a perfect segue into this section. You could laugh and laugh if it, you know, um, you commented on... You need to suffer. That's why I didn't let you talk. I'm rejoicing. Oh, okay. <laughs> good. I was thinking, about me ruling my life mm-hmm. versus Christ ruling my life, mm-hmm. and and so you know that's what popped into my head when I heard the word self-centered. And um, you know, who sits on the throne? Me or Christ? And it's a constant fight, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's all the other things trying to climb it onto that throne in our heart. Yes. Um, how do we know we are suffering? Uh, I'm also suffering from the result of our own choices. How do we, like, define <clears throat> this? Is a question. So, um, if your suffering comes from sinning, then you know you're suffering as a result of your own choices, right? So, um, you can pick the example there. But anytime the suffering comes from sinning, we're suffering because of our own choices, as it were. Um, and every time we were, we we're suffering because we obeyed God, then we know that's because of allegiance uh, to Him. Suffering because of obedience would be like a kid that is praying at school and gets made fun of. That, that no. Or um, a friend having a tough conversation with a, an unbelieving friend about an issue that has come up, and then that friend just you know, unleashing on her or him that's suffering for the sake of, of the gospel. Suffering because somebody's a jerk is not righteous suffering. Is not uh, you know, the kind of suffering that, that God calls us to do. Um, and you know, the most, as much as we can, we should not try to get into suffering. We shouldn't be too quick to push it away before it does its work in us that God has called us called called it to do in us. Katie. There's too many knots, knots in that sentence. I'm thinking, what about if you're sharing the gospel like a Yeah, that happens. then they're like, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, another sign of unrighteous suffering is, oh, I've been persecuted. When you need to say that, you know... It's like saying I'm so humble. <laughs> right? It's kind of like "Yeah." did what that Jesus hates her? So we can do all kinds of things wrongly, right? And but the, the the gospel is so powerful that even when we do it wrongly, still may have may save the person. Like Paul says that in Philippians 1. Uh, he got he heard some people are mad that uh, he heard that other people are preaching the gospel with the intent of getting him in trouble. And he says Hey, more people preaching the gospel. (laughs) But still you're accountable for how you do it. If you're a jerk in preaching the gospel, and if your life is a life that doesn't reflect a belief in Christ, you know, you're also preaching the gospel in a faulty way as well. You might be the you know the somebody, what? She's a Christian? You know, then you're you're actually. Uh, Covering the gospel with the way. Because those are the types of social media I follow, and then they're like, "Oh, I'm being, you know, persecuted or you know, oppressed or whatever, just because I'm following (coughs) you." And I'm like, "Well, but you're also being not unkind, even." Yeah. So, So, and that's my private opinion here on this. I think social media is the worst medium. To, to try to carry any sort of conversation. So, um, And you have all kinds of brave cowards that hide behind the keyboard yeah. and are willing to say all these things. You know, so be careful with, with posting on, be a stalker, not a <laughs> poster. <laughs> Anything else? So, yes, God wants us to be happy. To be happy in Jesus as we obey him, as we align ourselves with what he says in his word, in obedience, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We have the freedom to obey him. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that uh, you have freed us through Christ. Help us to be happy in you and to be satisfied with you, and to live lives that bring glory to you. Help us to endure whatever hardships you bring into our lives with contentment and joy. We also pray dismiss us with your blessings tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.